se le répandre. La foule sort, se disperse. Reste deux femmes et apparaît. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you today? I'm really good. Thanks so much for um, inviting me down here to Brighton and particularly to this cellar. I'm assuming you're not going to kill me, but um, <laughs> if you do have so to, it's a really gorgeous place to be murdered. Yeah, so. This is creepier yeah, than weird. the first time we met you. <laughs> we, yeah. What was, was the first time? It was after um, Outspoken in London. Okay, uh, yes. We approached uh, you after the show, you were having a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, hi. That's when you want to be approached. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this strange moment after gigs where you're not quite, it's like a netherworld because your adrenaline is so high and your, mm. your need for tobacco is equally high. <laughs> <laughs> so often there's a bit of a miasma for me after gigs. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what's happened. And it's sometimes you're in the mood to talk to people and sometimes you're not. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> do you know, recently I've basically doing Blue, doing the show Blue, which yeah. I'm, uh, I believe you're going to ask me about. Yeah. I've noticed that after I get off stage there, I... Um, I just, I feel really like I need to be alone. I feel, because it's such an intense mm. piece of work. And it's a really strange situation because at the same time, people want to really connect with you over that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's about the AIDS crisis and in particular Derek Jarman's illness under AIDS. Um, so it's been a very emotional response from people. And I've done what I normally do, which is go out and I've hugged quite a, a huge number of gay men over the last month, um, also other people. And then within sort of half an hour, I get like, I've got to be alone, I've got to mm. be alone. Like, it's almost like a panic, I start panicking, um, which is really weird. I hope, like, I hope that goes away. Yeah. Was yeah. it the first time that happens to you then? Yeah, to... I mean, there are times it gets really overwhelming. Because um, it's not just that people want to talk to you, but they want to tell you something, mm -hmm. you know, which is an amazing and privileged position to be in. And you want to get honor everybody who speaks to you. You really do. It's like the dream. But it's cumulative. And so certainly when you're on tour, you suddenly, you're not aware of it mounting up and building up. But um, yeah, people come with you and they'll, you'll sign a book and then they'll tell you something which can be really the first time they've told someone or something they're still working out for themselves or something just horrific, you know. Um, but either way, whatever it is, it's, 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 a, it's a vital, important, treasured thing. Yeah. Mm. So I'm a bit concerned about my need to be on my own at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mean, so for context, Blue is a film by Derek Jarman. Yes, so it's a film oh. that was made 30 years ago, pretty much 30 years to the month of May. And it was made by the cinematographer, the queer icon, Derek Jarman, who I knew from a very uh, removed level. I was on the periphery of the Dungeness scene. So one of the things he's very famous for is that, that as well as a filmmaker, he's a diarist, he's a writer, poet, and an activist. So he was huge in ACT UP, which was a, an activist group that was developed in the 80s in America, came to the UK, and it was us fighting back against AIDS and fighting basically the government, fighting the authorities that meant that most of our gay men were dying alone um, or, and you know treated in a most abysmal, disgusting way. So he was part of a movement that politicised HIV and AIDS, which is very, very important, alongside a low raft of other things. So Blue Now is what I've been involved in, which has been directed by Neil Bartlett, um, and funded by We Transfer, produced by Fuel Theatre, so it's like amazing kind of tick tick lineup. And um, in collaboration with the actor Russell Tovey, Neil decided they wanted to do a live version of the cinema, sh the, the film. For those who don't know the film, what you get is roughly an hour and a half, I think, in the cinema of a blue screen. That's all you see. And then over the top, you hear the usual actors in Germanesque films reading bits of his diary. So we've got the diary, and we divided it up between my voice, Russell Tovey's, Travis Alabanza, and Jay Bernard. And we've been touring um, across the UK, and the tour sold out in half an hour. Half an hour. 
half an hour. Yeah, I wanted to go. I was trying to get tickets for the one in London. Yeah. I couldn't get, <laughs> I couldn't get to it. Yeah, I missed the one in Brighton. I think yeah, we so were the theatre room in Brighton was our opening night, really. And, yeah. and I think they chose a really great place for it. Because, because uh, if you can imagine, it's, it's not like a normal performance at all. So it's you're using intimate voice and you're using intimate actions. Because what you're doing is um, you're kind of putting the audience into this strange meditative state. We have, <clears throat> touring with us, we're extremely lucky, got Simon Fisher-Turner, who was obviously part of the Jarman crew and wrote the music to all these other films such as Caravaggio, etc. and worked on them all. And he's creating live music. It's very, uh, it's like a soundscape. It's very about, it's very abstract. And it really does, as when we've all four of us first started to do it with the lights and the music, we all kind of went a little bit like that and then had to pull mm. ourselves out. So it's it's kind of like the inverse of a show. It's the opposite to what you would imagine, but at the same time it has this incredible impact throughout extremely long silences that we hold in it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and is was each performance very different or yeah i mean it was because it was according to who was in the room and the space itself so brighton theater royal was um a thousand silverback gay men silverback dykes um young queers and trans and as a consequence you were in with family and, and family who directly experienced what was being talked about as well as those learning for the first time mm -hmm. you know and and the that was a very emotional performance about five minutes silence at the end when we finished no nobody clapped or moved you could just hear people crying it was pitch black mm. in this huge theater then we move on to margate which is obviously a, a much more it's the turner contemporary so it's concrete and glass you can get far less people in and they did a really odd thing. I kind of attracted more of an art crowd because obviously he's an art icon as much as a queer icon. And um, they lay down on the floor. And we, they, very cleverly, they put blankets out and things and cushions for people to do that. And they just grabbed the audience. The audience got up and lay on the floor and they hugged each other. They had blankets over them and they, because there, there isn't anything to see apart from the right. blue screen, mm. you know. And, and, and the idea is lights are off us, you can see our lips, or sometimes, I think at the, the Tate, you could see all of us for the first time, but we didn't know. So by that point, we got really relaxed. <laughs> We're not keeping totally still, we're like, <laughs> in between our moments, you know. Um, a very, very moving show, really necessary for these times. Yeah, and so this this film, where, whereabouts were you in your career at that point when this film came out, when you first saw this film, Blue? So, uh, mm. 30 years ago, I was right at the very beginning. I was probably still at uni, which is where I met Derek Jarman. Um, oh, you met him? Yeah, I was on the sort of periphery. I met him a couple of times, yeah. but I was never I was never old enough or, 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 or I was right at the beginning. And also, I'm female. That isn't to say that he only ever supported men, but um, there was a gay coterie, you yeah, know, yeah. and, and it's um, which I think should be respected, and I certainly respected it as well. So I was just starting, and he um, came to my uni because he was a mate of Alan Beck, who was one of the British Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and also the founder of the Pink Paper, um, one of the founders. So they were good friends and came in and just I just hung around in a really creepy way. <laughs> so double the wisdom. You get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, what does it mean to you now, though, to be part of this for him? Um, uh, just the you most, know, having that. The most extraordinary honour. Like, um, so Neil Bartlett called me to a cafe in London, which was quite a long way from where I lived, but I was like, this particular cafe, okay, so I go. And it was Derek Jarman's cafe, so that's why we're mm. meeting there, so that he could say, and this is so-and-so Tanya, who's so used to serve Jarman, and you know, this place run by the same family. Yeah. And it was a very slow kind of introduction to the idea of the thing. 
But I just grabbed it straight away. I grabbed yeah. it. And, and, and I didn't know who else was involved at that point. Yeah, and how was it for you to share this experience with other artists? Superb. Like, absolutely brilliant. Um, so I know Jay Bernard really well. I've known Jay since they were 15 because um, I used to run some ambassadors. I founded the National Youth Slams. So, and I did that for 18 years. So Jay <laughs> was one of my little um, men mentees. Jay, I'm sorry, I called you that. <laughs> <But> <laughs> and then Travis, I've met a few times, like doing events together, and we're both very vocally supportive of each other's work when we can be. Russell, I'd never met before, and is Mr. Pickleface. He's a brilliant actor and just the most gorgeous mm. human being. So it felt like the four of us not only encompassed what the rainbow is, mm. but. Um, we had to get it together in two days. It's not like a six-week rehearsal planned at all. So that was two, two days. Two days. Two-day rehearsal. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. quick. <laughs> but that's because we were just voices. Uh, how, so, how familiar were you with your part going into it? No, not at all. No. None of us were. That was the point that we kind of brought what we do mm. with the idea of of this intimacy, like. I remember me and Travis talking about it back, you know, at, during the first day of rehearsal going, we literally have to let go of all of our box of tricks because Travis and I are probably the biggest performers mm. as such out of the group. So instead of constantly depending on body and expression and, you know, it's literally... About, yeah, <laughs> and it's literally about the timber of your voice yeah. and becoming different people. So really, by it took a while, I think, for us all to really... You know, um, I don't think we feel comfortable even now, and that's the point. Yeah, yeah. You know, it really is. And, and also, there was a silent person who was in every show, a different um, BSL interpreter came. And if you've ever seen um, BSL poetry, mm -hmm. it's incredible to watch. It's so yeah, yeah, in festivals, we've seen yeah. um, translations, live translations, and that's. Yeah. Really amazing. Sometimes you can just do it off. Yeah, it's like a side poem. Yeah, side, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can exactly. look at the interpreter and yeah. listen. Yeah. And so, and I yeah. think because there was just a blue screen, the interpreters were really the gaze of mm. the audience. You know, it's yeah. just this dance and and the face of the interpreter. They really embodied everything we were saying, which was um, there were some really difficult parts to say. You know. Yeah. But it was quiet. I, I can see why Neil Butler wanted me to do it because it's very much um, the same kind of energy as Kanto yeah, and yeah. other poems. It's got that same energy, post, no, not postmodern, modernist. Mm. You know, it's a very a modernist masterpiece. It's very much like Wasteland, T.S. Eliot. Mm. So you have influences coming from across mainly Europe, you know, that, that um, inform his diaries. Um, and it's a little bit like Kanto in that respect, you know, and the unifying idea behind the production. So you can talk about one specific thing, HIV, AIDS, arc, how it affected gay men, but in doing so, it embraces the whole of our community, and brings us all in for a moment, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that the projects are very similar in that respect. And because this is a, a, a recounting of the dead and an honoring of the dead as much as Blue is, there's a point in blue where I say names of people who've died, which I do in Kanto as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of, there were a couple of names that Derek had written, and then we added more from all of us that were meaningful to us. Really to honour them, but also to, from a performance perspective, when you say somebody's real name, it makes you really feel. And when you really feel, the audience really feels. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, and it's there's no acting or mm. hyperbole involved in it. It's just a fact. Yeah, so does it, it takes a lot out of you to perform it each, night, yeah. each time. Yeah, yeah, can do. I think does it. if I'm going to ask you a very general question, so in the preface of Kanto, you come with this idea that even though we think of this day and age as the the era of the gays or whatever, the golden, <laughs> golden age yeah. of the gays, it's actually not. And oh my God, no. This is so much more 
authoritarian. It's so much more restrictive within the community. Without what we had was everybody hated us. Everyone hated us. Now what's happening is, and I feel like it's a, it's a project. I feel, I'm not sure who's done it, but we're, we're more volatile toward each other than we ever were, ever. People talk about the sex wars in the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s, but all of that was done via books and by letters in magazines, which would take weeks to publish. You know, we don't get the... Social media, I think, is responsible for quite a lot of division and for celebrating a difference. Not even celebrating difference, because we used to say celebrate difference. We are different. But this is ind hyper-individuality. That's what it is. And it makes me feel it's got more to do with, with uber-capitalism than it's got to do with my people, not to do with the, you know, LGBT plus people. So I think... Um, and I'm the more I travel around the world and in particular Europe the message I'm hearing from everyone however they identify is that they want to come back together mm -hmm. everybody needs to come back because Chechnya is only five hours away Poland is only a few hours away and Hungary and we know what's happened in Uganda is getting closer and closer and the real enemy is not each other we, we, we've got rows but we're a family who've fallen out we have to stay in the same house. And I think um, that's why I think the golden age of the gays was definitely the late 80s and 90s in the UK, because it really, um, we knew everybody hated us and the feeling amongst us was so powerful and strong that it, that feeling gave birth to hundreds of dyke nights, gay male nights, mixed nights, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual centre, all of these spaces that I think we're all hungry for again, you know, in, yeah. in an inclusive manner. It's kind of mm -hmm. a theme of um, Canto, isn't it, where it's it's kind of a diminishing of venues. Yeah. Um, has it been diluted, do you think, or just there's less of them? I think, um, I mean, it depends how much of a conspiracy theory you want to put in, but let's just say the most successful civil rights movement in Western history is self-immolating. You know, and if you look at other movements like the Black Panthers in the UK, it was, was it 50 years later or 30 years later they discovered they'd got a desk in there, which was about putting officers in to disrupt the Panthers. So I don't know. I feel like, um, I, feel, I feel we're in a good kind of position at the moment, talking to younger people who are, some of whom are really inspired by a lot of the older stuff coming out because they didn't realise they could have all these spaces that every night of the week you could go to your own place, which is like a community centre, and meet up with one another. And you've got a kind of version online, but it, but um, <coughs> like, um, then nothing replaces the facts of the human in a space. So, for example, I might really dislike you. Like, say your <laughs> politics are like. Say your Say you have some dodgy views around, you know asylum seekers or whatever but we're all queer we end up in in one space and online i'm going to tear you apart mm. but online and then you might have like problems with me and the way i think but what happens when you're in a space together is that you negotiate those issues in some way you know and you find a way through it probably not a good example of the asylum seeker thing because i've just been you <laughs> but, but you know but the issues to do with ourselves say rather than that not that asylum seeking isn't to do with of course it's a huge part now I would like to see more work creating the rainbow railroad, railroad to get people out of Chechnya to get people out of Uganda you know mm. and for our efforts to really as a community and I believe, um, you can't see this space, guys, but this is perfect for our underground HQ. <laughs> it's full of fairy lights. It's very, very dark. Yeah. You cannot avoid people in the room. <laughs> you will have to be pleasant to people you don't like. And of course, we're here just uh, before Queer the Mic, mm. yes. which is a spoken word night in Brighton. Yeah. and uh, Organised by Rihanna and... And Ollie and Becca yeah. and uh, Kelly. And uh, we had them on on the show before yeah. so and you accepted to you know feature on their night um for brighton fringe 
And when we met you in London, you said, I'd do anything for a queer night. Or, yeah. yeah. So what does that mean for you to... Yeah, it's family, isn't it? I mean, I think, like... I mean, within reason. I mean, I'm doing some stupid things that I know make me ill for 50 quid, which is just has to stop because I do have to eat and I do have to pay my rent. Yeah. Mm. And generally speaking, a gig in another part of the country is a day there and a... And then the next yeah. morning back. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we were discussing me, that with the strikes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, all of that as well. But 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 what it means is that um, if if family is asking me to do something, I want to do it. And there is a really special feeling in the room because um, I will have to do some explaining tonight, but not a lot. Right. And you know, so and a lot of the events I do are predominantly heterosexual audiences, predominantly mm. poetry lovers. And um, there I have to do a lot more explaining, mm. even down to bits of language. Here's an example. And in the book, you have a lexicon as yeah, well. Yeah, you have a glossary that. in the book. Because people talk about Polari, the gay male language, but don't understand it's a female one. Because, you know, we talk about lesbophobia and misogyny and blah, 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 blah all of this stuff. Um, so it shouldn't surprise any of us that we walk around talking about Polari and voguing all the time but never think that there might be a lesbian equivalent, you know. And, and I think even in our own community, like, it's become a bit of a revelation, you know. Um, but it is, it's great. We all come back together again. I was going to tell you a funny story yeah. about... So I, I did a Royal Festival, Queen Elizabeth Hall, um, for Outspoken in London. It's a club I'm involved in running. And we had Kay Tempest headlining, Travis mm. Alabanza and myself. And at one point, I was on stage and it was rammed, about 900 people. And everyone, other person I looked at was either a trans man or, or a butch dyke. And so I said, oh, I see we have family in this evening. People laughed and I thought, on we went to the show. And then I found out later on that people thought I meant there family, were literally yeah, families in. Or... Yeah. And that's the difference. So you come to an event like Queer the Mic tonight, and I know that if I say families in, mm. nobody will. Even, it wouldn't even occur to people that children would be in the venue. Yeah, what's well, eighteen plus? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <night> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. So that's what it means. It's about it's about uh, honouring again, and um, and getting my fix. Mm. Yeah. So. Um, Usually we have poets on the show that are uh, less established, you know, just starting out, um, mid-range, and just put their first publication out. Mid-range, uh, like excellent. <laughs> okay. Mid, mid-career, mid, <laughs> middle. Yeah, just published, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's just interesting to ask someone who's so established, um, you know, what it means to be a poet for yourself. And obviously we've talked a lot about your identity um, but where does poet come into that as well? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, art is an insistence, you mm. know, and spoken word in particular is the poetry of emergency and urgency, you know. So these mm. things have always been with me. If I, um, I find it indivisible. I can't see the difference in between me being a dyke, a butch dyke and a, and a woman and me being an artist and a writer, they're both insistences, which doesn't mean to say that I, I, I write about, you know, being a dyke all the time. For years, in fact, I stopped. So when I first started, it was, all my work was around being gay, all of it, um, and very strongly feminist stuff. Um, but um, when I founded the National Youth Slams, there was another aspect of me that took control, and that was really about class. So for about 18 years, I really thought about class and my early work was around that, mm. you know. Um, yeah, to be a poet is, is it's, a, it's a, you know, I've called it cultural terrorism. It is in a sense because it's the last free art. Everything else costs so much money mm. and mm. takes so much time and involves everyone. Whereas within spoken word in particular, and then I think of now the more live poetry movement, which is something in between spoken word and poetry. Um, there's this sense of, um, it's not just support, and it's worst, it's constant support, because then you never develop. Mm. 
but it's it's about again community and holding you up and providing a space for people who don't have any money or very much kind of access to arts in terms of education to actually get involved in some way and to be given a space and that's really really important so for, for me poetry um is absolutely fundamental but maybe the word is art for me even more yeah. than poetry you know because i, I, I Sometimes I find a poem is a novel or a play, you know, or a really badly sung piece of music, mm. or those kinds of things. Everything is everything else. It's the quantum physics of poetry. And where, <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> but, um, there's, there's a theme that runs through Kanto, which is, and maybe the rest of your work as well, which is um, the kind of theatrical setup, the kind of the, uh, uh, putting a production on. Arranging it as a play. Yeah. Is that... Um... So, uh, it doesn't run through the, the other work, although you could say it did in terms of the fact that I performed the work. Right. But there was a really conscious decision here, and it came from that um, I'm going to do a piece at the end tonight, which people know as Canto. It's the, the, it's the sort of 12-minute mm -hmm. set of cantos that started the book. And I'm going to do it live for the first time in four years on Saturday night at the Roundhouse. Um, very scary. Um, but that started as a, as a, I wrote these cantos that then became a theatrical piece. And through doing that, I got a director, Rob Watt, and I was talking to him. He created kind of the world of the cantos being a boxing ring, roped off in barbed wire. Um, and I was writing down what should happen um you know the stage directions basically and it was him who noticed that my stage directions were poems and that maybe mm -hmm. instead of kind of resisting that um when i was writing the book i thought well yeah i'm just going to go and the reason i wanted to use that there's a very it's a device so it's a really quick way of going let's look at this um, so my next book, I'm using a lot of camera angles for the same kind of purpose. But also it's about being queer and constantly being looked at. Um, um, you know, you'll hear me talk about it tonight, being a lesbian and other butchers in the room will, will undoubtedly agree because everywhere I go, people go, yes. We walk down the street and uh, people comment on us all the time. It's like, so I got this idea, it's like being followed by a narrator, you know, in a bad <laughs> B movie. So that's where the stage directions come from. So it is putting on a show, it's a really good description as well, of, of kind of queer life, and gay life in particular, put on the show for people who are watching. Yeah. And it, yeah. You're, you're such a firebrand personality when you perform, and we, we saw you perform uh, in Outspoken, you know, in London. Um, what, what month was that? <clears throat> February. February. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's a wonderful night with musical acts and everything. Yeah. It's great. Um, but what I'm saying is the performance is such an important part of how you come across, how you um, deliver it. It's so powerful. How do, do you feel people relate to your poetry differently when it's just on the page? Do, is, it, is it necessary for people to... Um, kind of have heard you audio? I think, yeah, no. There, are, do you ever have it, fans that just read you and then speak to you yeah, about there that? Yeah, there are people that definitely tell me that... Um, so my audience, like I said, because of the, it's been a, quite a long career, I've got an audience that is very working class and spoken word, and like the more direct material earlier work, you know, um, and they, they engage with that a lot better and a lot more, less so with, with the reading. But I think with Kanto, what I was trying to do is reach this this bridge between what is spoken and what is written. And I know, because of the sales, I know I know that a lot more people have reached my work through reading now than seeing me do it live. Mm. But that when they do see me do it live, it changes their response to the work in some way. In some little way, I guess you hear. So mm. then you, whenever you watch somebody and then read their work, you can't get your voice out of your their voice out of yeah, your head definitely. and and as, as you read it with written, their way of yeah. speaking yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes for me that's actually been a hindrance you know mm. it has and i know a, a performer really really well and then i read something new of theirs like a novel i'm hearing it in that voice so i'm breaking yeah. rather than a, 
I don't get that that nude experience of just you know the idea or the story. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's a it's a it's a poison chalice. You have to be careful, and particularly with me winning the T. S. Eliot Prize, the first thing people did was try to make it about a performance. That's a book prize. It's got nothing to do with the performance. What do you mean it's they, a try way to, of, they try to make it about? It's a way of demeaning, because I'm working class and because I'm a dyke, a bit rough around the edges, darling. There's a, a review that said that. Oh. Because of that, they tried to make, like, why has this possibly won this biggest yeah, the, prize? Yeah, the slam poet. How, or, yeah, how yeah. could that? And did um, Dana Smith had a kind of similar response to their work as well for when Don't Call Us Dead. Uh, I think he won the Ford Prize. But Danes, I don't know if you're aware of Danes's work. Yeah. So Danes said, not not bad for a slam poet. That was their um, <laughs> C slam as a form too. It's a form. Mm. And I'm using form in this, but it's, it's invented form. Yeah. Um, now that we've got you here, <laughs> with slam poetry, how do you think of it in terms of being a competitive form or not? Is it just a way of getting people together to so originally, do poetry with energy? Yeah. So, um, first thing I'll say about slam poetry in the UK is it is dead. <laughs> it's dead because of class, because of lack of investment. Go to Brazil. Go to Brazil. Mm. So, original slams was literally, like, in the UK, and ones I've been involved in, literally about community, bringing people in, celebrating voices, providing space for people who are never listened to to have these three minutes, which is a, if you've ever done a slam, suddenly three minutes is a vista. It's a great expanse of time when you're afraid, you know? Um, so it's literally about that. the opposite for what me. Killed, <laughs> what killed for me slam as well is when we started to think of the person who won as a winner, as somebody who was, you know, the, the better poet. Most people, slam poets who kind of do this routine, I'm part of a slam circuit. I never slam myself but I feature on slams and I'm invited to them around the world and, and like the best in the world are in Brazil are incredible because in Portuguese or? yeah they have them in Portuguese but they also have international slams where they project your words I think the last slam I did there um, and I did take part in it for my ticket to Brazil um, there was something like 2,000 people it's huge huge arena it's very different to the way we do things it's very political, it's from the heart. And then when we left that arena, we're going along the beach and another slam had set up. Somebody just made a circle with their bodies and they were, there were poets from all over the world just suddenly joining and doing that. Because that's what it's about. It's about, it's about um, community-led, grassroots, political thinking. You know, when slam started to be about who was going to win, then you started to get the poets who were like funny or, and all of that is amazing. It's amazing, but it's it's different to the the origins, you know, uh, of of um, of the movement. What what do you say? You know, there was this big thing recently by this guy who should go nameless, um, who said, you know, poetry's been dead since uh, T. S. Eliot's The Wasteland. You know, that was the end of poetry. And uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's hyperbolic, but when, when you hear that kind of thing... You just, it's, it just a, it's just a, a, whatever the collective noun for an eye roll is. Like, it, it's just, <laughs> I, I mean, so I'm 55 and poetry is the new rock and roll has been said, oh, a good, a good 20 times now in my lifetime. It's also died quite a lot yeah. in my lifetime. The fact of the matter, it continues. It's fine to say that the wasteland is a pinnacle of a certain kind of writing. It is. There's problematic things within it, but it's brilliant at the same time. But then so is Don't Call Us Dead. It's absolute genius. Post-colonial love poem. Heritage aesthetics uh, to Sweet and Bitter. These are all Fran, anything by Fran Locke. There is extraordinary movements within poetry particularly some really exciting stuff that teases the space between the intimate space and the extrovert space, or what is written and what is spoken, right, yeah. and the interplay between the two, you know? Because for me, I've always thought of it as by any means necessary. And if people can't understand me, 
other than some critics who think I'm fabulous, darling, but the actual people <laughs> I go on tour with don't understand what I'm saying. It becomes a pointless. Mm. It's a it's a conversation where you can never understand what the other person is saying. That's kind of the trick of being a, a poet in, in the sense of there's great deep metaphors in your poet in your written poetry and in your pieces as well. But to retain to be able to speak to someone who just turns up to a poetry event for the first time as well. That, yeah, I mean, it seems like it means... I mean, there are so many differences between poetry and spoken word that I've used over the years. One of them is that spoken word leans forward and poetry leans back, you know? Um, poetry, uh, no, spoken word gives an answer. So we call it the victory poem. You'll know the one. Mm. It's the one that starts like this and then gets more and more yeah, assertive inspirational and, and bigger poem, yeah. inspirational motivational getting faster 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 they call it a victory poem like Churchill so basically mm. the idea is the audience goes at the end stands up they can't help themselves because it does that to your body you know um, yeah I mean uh, poetry is can just give you a glimpse of something poetry poetry doesn't give answers it asks questions so often you leave, I, I try to leave a poem in a moment of wonder. Not with, and that's why they're all, or anything like that. You know, there's no resolution because the idea, and in Canto, it's the first time I've tried to write poems that depend on each other for the story. So it's a narrative, um, which you see more clearly in the stage play, which is just this, arranged in a diff slightly different order, things brought up, it's just the same poems. Like, um, yeah, so you get a lot more, I'm going to be bummed for this, but I think writing page poetry gives you more freedom on the page because I actually think being a spoken word artist is more difficult. For example, because I'm half and half tonight, you'll see that I go up with my book, I've already written it and I... None of it was written to perform at all. It was written to, to be read. But I've worked a way of saying it out loud. And only at the end will I let go of the book and go to spoken word for the last 15 minutes. Um, if I was a spoken word artist, if I was doing like, like say I was with Songs My Enemy Taught Me That Talk, then you're memorizing an hour's mm. worth of stuff. Yeah, 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 I find spoken word so difficult because of the memory. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, but that's a huge part of it. I don't think you actually... And the reason I do carry my book is, you, is I'm trying to show I'm on the bridge. Um, yeah. But you don't need to memorise poems. You don't. You need to know them. And you the written poem them. is a medium. Yeah. So there's a... Between you, the page, and the audience or the reader. Yeah. Whereas spoken word is you to the person straight Direct. away. Yeah. Directly. Um, and it has to account for things like... I've lost a tooth, so now I'm slurring, and that changes the way I come across. Or, you know, I'm five foot three, but in this poem I'm six foot two. You know, the, there's the physical reality of the poet, that the mm. artist is in the space with you and is part of the work. Yeah, yeah. and it's very high energy. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yes, it really, 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 really can be. Um, not that, I mean, I've written, so, um, no, I've not written, I've read some incredible page poems. Um, and the best ones want to leave the page. They, they migrate. And running outspoken, the old definitions are no longer useful. For, mm. To define... Of poetry and spoken yeah. word. And yeah. that, I mean, to, to stop page... To, 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 yeah, to confine a poet to the page. Mm. There are some incredible mm. readers of their work out there, but it's that spoken word now. Mm. Yeah. It's not written of the body, with the body in mind. It's like the early poems I'll do this evening. Yeah. You'll see they're not written for the body at all. It's just Yeah, and um, we, we spoke to Wayne Holloway-Smith um, at friend. the Verve Festival. And um, he mentioned your work there. And uh, yeah, so where, where did you guys first meet? We met for a mutual friend, Anthony and Aksaguru. Um, and so I think Wayne was somebody that we were going to have on stage, outspoken. And it was just like a slow induction over the years. And then we had this magnificent 
Um, we were both very lucky, invited by Bernadine Evaristo to Berlin, mm. where we got to spend um, a few days together just with Daljit Nagra and Kit the Wall and Bernadine just hanging out talking about class and how it affects them. And Wayne Holloway-Smith now is obviously the editor of Poetry Review, but we've known each other since before then. It's a, it's a very fine poet, yeah. really strong poet. Is it, and when we spoke to him, he talked about the difficulty of uh, mentoring, you know, mentoring new poets and how it's, you have to give a lot of yourself and it's not terribly creative. It's more of a technical, more of a technical thing in a way. Yeah. And um, maybe a coach as well, like a kind of... Yeah, I mean, well, I've, I did that for 18 years, so I, I'm going to think very differently to the boys about this. Um, because it is a very creative thing. It's a frustrating thing, which is probably what Wayne means. Like, you've got to learn the technicality. Yeah, I think I've misquoted him because I think that uh, what he actually <laughs> said, what he actually said is that it's incredibly energy consuming. And that Very good, yeah. as, as a process of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. he couldn't really find time to write. Uh, he is, his process is very slow. I 100% gradually. agree. Yeah. So for the 18 years running Slam Ambassadors, you have to be really focused, particularly if you're working with younger people who are, you know, uh, who have been disturbed in some way, whose mm. lives have been um, um, dealing with trauma, etc. Um, it's an art and you have to give 100% of yourself because these are people who are looking for you, not believing them, you know, and if you don't believe yourself fully, they will know. Mm. And, and therefore the work you're doing is ineffective. So th this is kind of different to the mentoring I do now, which is of adults, younger adults or older adults, you know. Mm. And so ambassadors, I was working with kids who were really lost within the system um, and disenfranchised from education and from society as a whole, really. Mm. Um, whereas now I'm working more with people who are poets. Um, so I think... Sometimes it can be an incredibly inspiring thing. Like I was editing for Outspoken Press for a couple of years and I wanted to work with just uh, women and non-binary. And to sort of, I'm a developmental ed editor, so that means that I feel very dissatisfied if you send me your book and it's great. Then I'm like, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> so I chose things that needed developing or I could see a way to do that. And for me, that, that was a very creative process. And while I was writing Kanto, I was mentoring Lisa Lux and Safia um, Camaria Kinshasa and um, uh, Alice Frecknell, a few, Sarah Fletcher, a few other people during that. And it, it, I find it very creative because we're just looking at individual poems. It's so geeky. You know what I mean? I always think of myself as like one of those young men on Sunday mornings with the bonnet open over a poem we're all there in our yeah. white vests going ah, 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 yeah. trying to make it what work what about you this know? word yeah exactly so well, I usually do that stuff in private yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's when, you, when you're doing it in front of other people and showing them your process yeah is, is there a sense when you do that as well that you kind of um, you know expose yourself as merely a human you know as um giving away some of the the magic of See, the, 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 so the, the real i think skills to to mentoring are one which is a pastoral thing which is much more about holding the person and being aware of the uh the fear so i'm very attuned to that and i think you know i think it's i think it's an important part of the work because um, we've all had experiences. If you just tell people what you think of their poem, pff, things explode, world ends. These are very, very, very beautiful things. So really what a mentor does is hold you and then asks you questions and then asks you to consider something else. And yet, when you're not doing it properly, you might look at someone's poem and go, oh, that's literally my work. <laughs> but the idea is, you know, it's like when you have a kid and the shoelace keeps getting undone. What we all do is we're busy, so we tie the shoelace here, but what we I have to that. do is not to do I that. Did that four times so the three. kid learns. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so that it's the same kind of idea. So it's asking yeah. it's the right set of questions. It's giving space to grow. Yeah, and you know, and, and the grief. 
because nobody gives a poem thinking that you're going to tell them what's wrong with it. They might say that, <laughs> they've worked really bloody hard and they've given you their best piece. And you might come to it and go like, well, I knew what was going to happen by line two, so yeah. it's very straight. Mm. Uh, where are your metaphors? You know, what have you thought about different ways of doing this? What do you read? You know, there are a, a, a shocking number of people who do write who don't read as well, which is like being a musician who doesn't listen to other music. And I mean, other poetry, what, particularly from spoken what, words. What brings, them, what brings them into writing poetry if, if they haven't read? I'm, I think I'm it's, it's the speaking, it's the, the generating. I mean, I'm speaking from experience, uh, speaking of myself yeah. as well. Yeah, the is expression, that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so spoken word is a different impulse. Right, right. We, we'll have all been told at some point we're good with words from very working class backgrounds. So there's no access to arts. Nobody's sitting around reading in their library, reading books. There's no sort of framework by which you can understand yourself. Mm. You're, so you don't connect necessarily with reading other poems. Yeah. You, so Did you find a resistance music. of people who didn't want to read? There, there, is, there is still, mm. and I think this is great, by the way, I'm not slagging it off. I still know people on the very traditional spoken word scene who A, don't want to publish anything, even though they could because they've got enough of a, an audience for them to make that viable, um, and don't engage with reading. And they get more from music and hip-hop and rap. Yeah, they like to be in yeah. the space. And this is it. How do we, like, when we have, in the space, when we have big awards for books, but nothing for in the room, who's the best performer? So there are the saboteur awards, which I won. There's the Saboteur Awards, but in terms of all the big mechanisms, you know, the people who've set up Saboteur have done brilliant, brilliant work, um, but needs a lot more investment to, for us to understand that a live night, spoken word, deserves the same critical reflection as, as a book, and, 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 and the same kind of honouring of it as well. Yeah, because the Saboteur Awards, they have categories for all the different ways of doing poetry which is amazing they they have a spoken word night regular mm. spoken word night mm. spoken word show mm. poetry collection poetry pamphlet yeah they've really thought about it they really have thought about collaborative it work there's so much to it we're waiting for them to put poetry podcast in it <laughs> oh that's such a good idea <laughs> Because maybe we have a chance of being. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm chair, chairing a panel for the Forward Prize this year. So it's the first year in its history the Forward Prize is allowing performed poetry. And mm. we've just been going through all of that at the moment. So there are changes afoot. But it, I think it is going to be a process. Um, because, because we have a very strong class system, which means that spoken word is seen as thick people's art, stupid people, rough people, poetry is more elegant people, you know, and this is really basic. Um, so it also means that's where the revolution is. Yeah, but I've also seen spoken word, you know, be the gateway to poetry as yeah, well. And, precisely. you know, really florid written poetry as well. And, and if you think about it, it was all spoken word. Yeah. To some extent, you know, yeah, of the oral tradition. The oral yeah. tradition. I mean, even going to like, to things like Charles Dickens, which are entire books, novels. He was memorizing sections of them, performing them, on big tours. You know, so there is a real precedence for it, and it's just the last couple of hundred years that have messed everything up for everyone. <laughs> but hopefully, I mean, I mean, uh, there's so much to talk about in terms of can't talk about poetry without talking about class or race. Mm. Uh, they are the things that, um, that, that really are the things that are gatekept. It's gatekept, obviously. And it's really interesting to be more established now and be considered a gatekeeper. Yeah. You know, because you're like, shit, where is the gate? <laughs> What's the gate? <laughs> okay. We could talk for hours, but we're yeah, running about, uh, out of time. Can we just, uh, could you just read a poem? Yeah, sure. Before we end the episode. <laughs> um, 
don't know which one to do. So <laughs> I think it's the first episode where we haven't read many poems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. That was great. <laughs> a woman steps out of her wound, because I never read it. So let's do it. A woman steps out of her wound. One hole in the centre of her boy and the whole town falls in behind her. Her parents sucked in feet first, still clutching the semi-detached tablecloth, the bathroom mirror, her face still sticking to it. Then her elder brother is pulled in too and he grabs the hand of his girlfriend and she also is absorbed and her parents the whole of the boys' class in school plummet to the centre of the wound, dragging her first day at the local college behind them, and all succumb to the gravitational force of the wound, the black hole at the centre of a boy. The wound is a circus ring, and the circus brings the town to it. See how the animals animal. See how the girl is almost a girl. See the boys grow out from their wounds head first. When the trapeze artist loses her grip on the narrative, the townsfolk watch silently as she tumbles to a dust that they draw a Venn diagram of a wound and an exit in. When the ambulance comes, it flashes a bright blue gash and its gaudy O is a pinhole in a door. You can see the future through the hole in a girl the doctor says, and the boy leans over, sees herself step out from the wound, whose edges applaud in red velvet grief, sees herself wear her wound as a cape, a call that she raises as one of her own, dresses in schoolboy suits, well, 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 the doctor smiles. It must be true. What does not kill you, makes you, make you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Poetry to Your Ears. This podcast is published as a newsletter on Substack. All of our content is published for free. But if you would like to support our work, you can become a paid subscriber. This will help us support transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing community and anyone who would benefit from reading the podcast alongside hearing it. You can also support us for free by rating the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the show with your friends, fellow poets and poetry lovers. If you want to interact with us, you can follow us on at is on Instagram and at poetry2, number two, your ears on Twitter, or you can also write a comment on Substack. If you're American and you're listening to us, send us a message. Half of our listeners are American. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. <laughs>